It's good to see everybody this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Uh, we've been making our way through the book of Colossians. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen Paul's address to uh, husbands and wives, to parents and children. And we come now to kind of the end of that little passage where Paul addresses bondservants, slaves, and their masters. We're going to be looking at verses 22, chapter 3, verse 22, into chapter 4, verse 1. And what we have here really is a theology of work. Let's read it, and then we'll take a look at it together. Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. For this portion of scripture in particular as we look at it today, but for all of your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts now, that we would uh, see what you have for us here. We thank you for your kind care. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've seen the past couple of weeks, Paul takes us inside the Christian home with instructions to husbands and wives and parents and children. But there's another group in that ancient household that Paul also wants to address. Bond servants. Other translations, you might have a different translation that says slaves or servants. It's the same word there. There were about 60 million slaves in Paul's day. It's about one half of the general population. That's a lot of people. Slaves did most of the work in those days. I mean, that was their entire purpose was to work. I mean, even uh, doctors and teachers would often be slaves in that time. And they were viewed as tools, animate ones, but nothing more than tools. And so what Paul said to them addressed the very heart of their existence. Really, no one viewed them as anything else but a worker. This passage is first and foremost about work. That's what Paul's talking about. But we, we can't ignore the fact that these words are directed towards slaves and slave masters. Which, it isn't lost on me that that's, that's a difficult topic. <laughs> it's not easy to wrap our brains around that. I mean, the Bible is talking about slavery here. So before we look at what Paul has to say in, in, in its content, I want to first say something about slavery because I think it's important for us to, to recognize the reality of it and see what the Bible has to say. Paul's address to husbands, wives, parents, children, what we've seen so far, um, 
that addresses a, a God-ordained, a God-blessed social structure inside of the, of the household. In this address to slaves, Paul is he's stepping into and even on top of a social construction of oppression that God does not condone. This is not the Bible's pro-slavery take. Some wonder why Paul didn't attack the institution of slavery head on here. I mean, he could have, right? Why give instructions rather than condemnation? Well, one reason is because radical change, radical social change in particular, never happens in an instant, does it? And in the meantime, the gospel has something to say to everyone in any situation. Paul is applying the gospel to this reality of slavery and showing how the fullness of Christ makes a difference today, no matter what your situation. It's important, I think, to point out that this passage should never be viewed as the Bible's approval of slavery. Uh, some people would receive it that way. Some people would reject the Bible itself because it doesn't condemn slavery outright here. But like anything, we, to understand what the Bible says about a, a certain topic, we have to take the Bible as a whole. If we take the totality of what the Bible says, we could never conclude that God is pro-slavery. In fact, the Bible is the very reason that we have any anti-slavery ideas at all. Passages like ours today introduced a new idea into the world, into the world that just assumes slavery, that accepts it as, as just a normal part of life. The Bible actually interrupts that line of thinking. No one else was saying anything remotely close to what Paul says in this passage. It was the idea that slaves are inherently equal to their masters. No one else thought that in that time. Slaves were inherently equal to their masters, just as wives are to the husbands and children to their parents. Paul destroys the normative social construction and brings the fullness of Christ to bear upon the lives of bondservants. That was a radical new idea. Paul turned his, his modern world's view of humanity on its head. If we do away with the Bible because we believe its views of human equality are too backward, we are actually just cutting off the branch that we're sitting on. The only reason we have those ideas of human equality at all is because the Bible quite literally gave them to us. No one in the ancient world talked to slaves as inherent equals to their masters. Only Christians did that. Luke Ferry is a, a French philosopher. He's not a Christian. And some years ago, he wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. It's a really great book. Here's what he said about Christianity. Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time. 
This idea may seem self-evident to us now, here today, but it was literally unheard of at the time, and it turned an entire world order upside down. Without Christianity's idea of human equality found in the gospel of Christ, we would never have our, social, our ideas of social equality. We just wouldn't. The civil rights movement would never have happened without Jesus breaking into the world with his new vision of humanity. Christianity changed the social game. It's that big. So just because Paul addressed slaves doesn't mean that he's falling in line with the social norm. By addressing slaves as human beings with moral agency and being on the same level as their masters, that was quite literally a brand new thing. This is a level of dignity they would have never imagined they could have had. We could think of God as the first abolitionist. He's the originator of the civil rights movement throughout the world. And the Bible has some amazing verses about this. I mean, one we've already seen, Colossians 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul said about the same thing in, in uh, Galatians 3, 28. 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's just leveling the playing field here. We are all one under God. In the Christian church, there is no room for sexism or racism or any other social separation into upper and lower classes. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I think we're used to that language today. We're used to that idea today, but that's only because the Bible gave us that idea we would not have come up with that. And there's a long line of history that proves it. Every person who has ever fought for social equality has done so because the Bible gave them the framework for that understanding. That's amazing. The moral ground for every civil rights movement is the Bible. God gave us these ideas. And this is just one of a million ways in which Christianity literally changed the world. We see it play out in the, in the early um, part of the church's history. Inside the Colossian church, for example. I think this is really profound. Inside the Colossian church sat at least one slave that we know of. His name was Onesimus. The house in which the Colossian church met was likely owned by a man named Philemon. Now, Philemon also owned Onesimus. One day, Onesimus escaped and ran to Rome. And he apparently had taken something from Philemon on the way out. And he was hoping, I don't know, to hide in the big city, as it were. Well, by God's providence, he met Paul. And Paul shared the gospel with him. And Onesimus became a Christian. And Paul wrote a letter to Onesimus' 
that's hard to say. His master, Philemon. We have it in our Bible. It's a very, very short, it's one chapter. It's, I think, a page in my Bible. You should read it if you haven't. In that letter, Paul appealed to Philemon in Christ to receive Onesimus back, not as a bondservant, but as not even a brother, a beloved brother. He asked Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself and promised to repay any debts that Onesimus owed. That's a radical thing. That was unheard of in his day. No one else in the ancient world was saying things like that. It's the kind of thing that only the gospel makes possible. The Christian gospel speaks to all people in every situation. And that's part of what I want to show here this morning. You cannot get any socially lower than a slave, than a bondservant. But Jesus doesn't ignore the lowly. He speaks directly to them in their situation, where they are. I mean, that's nothing new for God, is it? I mean, we think back to the Exodus. Israel is in slavery in Egypt. What happened? God heard their groanings. Fast forward thousands of years, and here is a slave in the Colossian church wondering how what Paul says applies to his life. He was seen as equal to a a shovel, a tool, with no rights or dignity in himself. And then he hears this, bondservants. Jesus is speaking to him. That's glorious. In the hands of our Savior, even the lowliness of slavery can be a glorious calling in Christ. I don't say that that, that flippantly, as if slavery doesn't matter. I say it because that's what the Bible says. (laughs) That's what Paul is saying in this passage. Slaves are not nobodies to Jesus. They are somebodies on the same level as the richest, most powerful man. So that's my brief word on slavery. Now the rest of the time, I want to I look and see what this passage has to say to us today. If you look at just about any commentary on this passage, past or present, this isn't just a modern uh, phenomenon here, it'll jump into how this applies to us in the workplace. I mean, that's the content of what Paul is saying. How are you to work as a Christian? Well, here's how. What Paul says to slaves can be applied to employees. And what Paul says to slave masters can be applied to employers. Now, this is not an apples-to-apples comparison to us today. Our our modern workplace and slavery are not the same situations. That should be obvious to us, but I think it bears stating. But what Paul says about how one is to work and the attitude one is to take toward his or her workers should be applied to our modern workplace. He's not so much talking about slavery as he is talking about the work itself. Now, I think this is more amazing um, 
than we might first think when we first read this. Just as Jesus cares about the husband and wife relationship, and just as Jesus cares about the parent and child relationship, Jesus cares about our work relationships. He cares about our work relationships. Our lives are, are split basically into thirds, aren't they? I mean, we, we sleep for a third, we work for a third, and we do other stuff for a third, which most of that's made up of work too. It's just of a different nature. We're washing the dishes, we're doing the laundry, we're taking care of the kids. If you're me, you're helping the kids with homework, and I barely know how to do it. I'm not smarter than a fifth grader. Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus cares about all of those things? Every single bit of it. There is not a throwaway moment of our life. Not to Him. He doesn't only care about the sacred moments. It's all sacred to Him. He is deeply involved with the entirety of our life. We can get so bogged down in the, in the day-to-day details, but what Paul does here is, is he's just kind of lifting us up out of those day-to-day details, and he's showing us what Jesus thinks about it all. So what I want to do is I want to look at three truths that Jesus wants us to know as we work. He wants us to know that there is a higher master, that there is a great inheritance, and that there is a just reward. So first, there is a higher master. Look at verse 22. Bond servants. I want to stop there again. We might expect Paul to start a different way. I mean, why address the slaves before the masters? But if we look at how the entire section is arranged, we could ask why not Husbands before the wives, or parents before the children. Paul is, he started with the powerless, because the powerful are always first, aren't they? He started where where there is the least natural hope, and infused a gospel bomb right there. There's grace and mercy, I think, even in the construction of the verses. Isn't God's word amazing? (laughs) Little things like that make a big difference. So what does Paul tell the bondservants? Well, he says to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. I mean, it's similar to what uh, Paul had said to children, isn't it? Now, of course, as Dustin has said the past couple of weeks, whenever we hear this from Paul, he's not condoning sinful behavior. You know, you're not going to go rob a bank because your master wants you to. Any more than you're going to rob a bank because your husband or your parent wants you to. That's not what he's talking about. Bondservants are not to be disobedient to their masters, but if their masters ask them to do something sinful, well, they have a higher master. They are to obey their earthly masters, but they are to fear the Lord. Jesus is, he not only limits slave masters' authority here, but he also frees the slave to disobey when morally necessary. Again, That's a new idea. (laughs) The earthly master is only earthly. Jesus is the big boss, as my grandmother used to say. We all have an earthly boss. 
someone demands our time and attention. Even if we work for ourselves, we don't really, do we? How are we to obey? How are we to work? Well, Paul tells us, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. There are two things here. There's a positive and there's a negative. Negatively, we can't slack off when no one's looking. Jesus' eye is ever upon us. Positively, we don't have to hope that someone notices all our hard work. Because Jesus' eye is ever upon us. Both of these things are good news. It means there is not a meaningless moment in all of your toil. There's just not. The king of the universe is right there in it with you, moment by moment. And when the king notices you, you can't slack off. You don't even want to. And when the king notices you, you don't need any other praise, do you? His is enough. Someone once asked G.K. Chesterton, if the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Chesterton looked them squarely in the eye and he said, he is. That's what Paul's talking about. Jesus is standing with us. So when you're sitting at your desk, tempted to slack off, remember Jesus is watching. Your work matters to him. How you work matters to him. He wants you to work hard because that's how his people work. It's like the patriot way or the Yankee way. There's a certain way Christians go about their work, and it looks like Jesus, always about his father's business. And when you're sitting at your desk wishing someone noticed the care that you put into every task, you can remember that Jesus is watching you. He notices. He sees the effort, even if no one else ever will. And he rejoices in it. The care that you put into your work is putting the glory of Jesus on display as you devote yourself and your work to him. That's what the Bible says about your work. This changes our Mondays, doesn't it? As we serve our earthly masters, we are serving also and most truly the Lord Jesus himself. We are working most truly for him. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This, right here, here's the fullness of Christ for your work. Some of us have joyless jobs. And maybe we're trying to find a way out of it. Maybe we're just stuck in it. Who knows? I don't know what your situation is. I can say all of us have at least one joyless task in our job, don't we? But Jesus is saying it doesn't matter to him what you do. Whatever you do. Our work, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly meaningless it is, our work is not too small for Jesus. 
Our work matters because it matters to him. Our little work life isn't so little. Not anymore. Even the slave's work is cherished by Jesus and received by him as unto him. That's amazing to me. We all have earthly masters. Some of them are good bosses and some of them aren't. But we all, no matter our current situation, we all have a higher master who is good and who does good. And he is who ultimately matters. What kind of boss is Jesus? I promise you he's a good one. He's forgiving. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. He expects a lot. We can't ignore that fact. He doesn't coddle us. But he does care for us. He asks us to work hard. You can't read the Bible and get around that fact, can you? He asks us to work hard. Working for the Lord actually means that our work might get even harder than it already is. No eye service. No people pleasing. But we're working for Him. It's far more rewarding just because of that. Jesus makes even the most menial task an important one. Not because of what we're doing, but because of who we are doing it for. We're doing it for Him. We won't slack off because his eyes are always upon us. And he will send us his help by the power of his Holy Spirit to give us energy for whatever that task is. He will give us rest at night after a hard day. He will give us peace during the tough parts. And some of us have some really tough parts coming up this week, don't we? He will be all we need anyone to be for us. No matter our current situation, the deepest truth about our work is that Jesus is in it all and over it all. We're going to be okay. The gospel of Christ goes everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. And on top of all that, there's another truth to remember in our work there is a great inheritance. Look at verse 24. We are to work hard, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now here's a, a truth that we know and a promise we receive. Because we are in Christ, who, as we've seen just in the book of Colossians, is all in all, who is the firstborn of all creations, is a big God, guys. Because we are in Christ, we know that from Him we will receive something. An inheritance. Paul calls this the reward. Then he, he connects that with another truth. One we've already been talking about. You are serving the Lord Christ. You may serve your boss, 
But if you're a Christian, you serve Jesus first and foremost. Nothing in your life is outside your relationship with him. And that makes all the difference. He, he is all in with you. And he wants you to know that. And Jesus seals it with his blood-bought promise of a heavenly inheritance. You are not working for nothing. I can't help but think of a slave situation here. I mean, think of the suffering at work. Every task just reminds them of their lowly status. I mean, they're doing work no one else would do. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 come to mind. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's some gospel hope. A slave has no hope of an inheritance in this world. Not even a little bit of hope. He has only to work and then to die. And then Jesus comes along. And he interrupts that thought and he says, no, 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 no. There is a reward for you and me. You can work hard here in this life because this life isn't all there is. One day you will be with me in my glory and you will share in all that I have. You are a co-heir with me. All I ask of you now is to just trust me, to just follow me. I'm leading you to paradise, even though you may not be able to see that yet. And there I will show you that all your work was not in vain. Because I received it as if it was done for me. He not only says that to slaves in Colossae. He says that to you and me today. How do you think that changes the way we spend our days? And because our days are made up of so much work, mustn't it also change the way we work? We don't need to scratch for a dollar hoping to build a life of ease and comfort and security in this world. Because let me let you in on a little secret. No amount of money is ever enough to secure you from all your greatest fears. There just isn't enough. Work must be more than just money. So we might think, well, but, you know, I don't work just for the money. I work because it makes me feel good. I I like being what I am. We define ourselves by our vocations so often, don't we? It's maybe the second question after, what's your name? Oh, what do you do for a living? It's so wrapped up in who we are. But let me let you in on a little secret. No status 
is greater than the one that you already have freely by grace. A child of God. What if that was how we introduced ourselves? <laughs> Forget even that. What if that was just how we thought about ourselves? You receive the heavenly inheritance not by merit, but by grace. And that changes everything. All you need, all that you need your work to do for you, that you to fulfill all of your greatest hopes and dreams, Jesus is giving us all of it freely. We just have to receive it. If you rest in that, then you'll start doing your work as he intended all along. It'll suddenly, it'll, it'll satisfy you in a way it never could before. It won't be your all in all. Only when you receive the grace of Christ for your work will you ever be able to find any real contentment in your work. Jesus has already given you all the riches of heaven, all the status of a child of God, all the comfort of abundant life, all the security of eternity. We have it all in him right now. And when you realize what you've been given by Christ, you're actually free then to do your best work. It takes away all those wrong motives. You can serve without fear. You can work hard knowing rest is coming. You can accomplish tasks you deem beneath you because Jesus asked you to do them. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing them. How can you say no to him? I mean, who knows what he might do with even the smallest task done unto him? He can change the world through that. He's done it before. Our work is not this wilderness that we go into looking for God. It's a garden that God gives to us to cultivate for His sake. And He comes walking in it with us. And you need to know that. J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he, Lord of the Rings, right? I don't know if you've ever read Lord of the Rings or even seen the movie. It's long. <laughs> and believe it or not, there was a time when he was writing it, he thought, I'm not sure I'm going to get through this. And it actually caused him a great deal of anxiety. He was constantly late with his publishers, constantly apologizing, constantly wondering, am I just wasting my life on this? What am I doing? And in the middle of that despair, he, he wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle, whose name means to work in a fiddling or ineffective way. <laughs> he was a painter, and he was commissioned to paint a grand tree, and really behind that tree is great grand country. But the tree was kind of the focus for him. The problem was he could never actually get it out on the canvas. All he could manage to paint was a single leaf. He spent so much time on the little details of the leaf. And he was nearing the end of his life, and he realized, I'm never going to finish this thing. And in the story, he dies, and all that he had left behind was that one single leaf. And someone, they were going through his stuff, they found it, they gave it to the museum, and the museum hangs it up, and it's leaf by niggle. 
And a few people saw it, and that was it. But the story doesn't end there. The story goes on, and Nigel is on his way to the afterlife, and, and on the journey, he, he hears two voices. One is the voice of justice, who is just wearing him out for wasting his life on this stupid leaf. You should have done more. And the other is mercy, who is kind to him and promises that there's something else out ahead. And he's on this journey, and he goes, and he's, he's nearing the end, and his eye catches something. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed, and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree. And slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. Here's the point. The leaf wasn't a waste of time. It was a request not from his earthly boss, but from Jesus himself. Part of Niggle's reward was the completion of the task. His life's work was but a leaf on Jesus' great tree. And your work is like that too. But it's not in vain. It's not meaningless. And one day too, you will see the fullness of it. And I'm not even sure what that really looks like, but I believe it's true. One day you will enter God's rest. One day you will receive the inheritance because you are serving the Lord Christ. And he will make all that we've done worth it in the end. Now, one more thing to see in verse 25 and extending in verse 24 and into, verse, into chapter 4, verse 1. There's a just reward for our work. All we've seen so far has really been directed at those who work, at the workers. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, the attentions turn to the masters. But verse 25 is, is kind of a bit ambiguous. You read it, and it says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Well, is that directed toward the workers or the masters? I think both. There's a transition here. I think it's talking to both. Both parties can do wrong, and the wrongdoer will be repaid for his wrong. In God, there is no partiality. That means it doesn't matter if you're powerful and can get away with something. And it doesn't matter if you're so lowly, no one will notice you not doing what you should be doing. God sees and God knows everything. And he doesn't care who you are in this world. Because whoever you are, you're under his watch. And he's just. He is the perfect judge. The World Series just ended last night. Y'all know, I love baseball. So I watched all of it. Uh, game three, I think it was. Pat Hoberg was the home plate umpire, and he called the only perfect game in World Series history. And I'm not talking about the pitcher. <laughs> he, 
Every true strike, he called a strike. And every true ball, he called a ball. That's amazing. His eye was perfect. That's the kind of judge that God is. It doesn't matter if it's the cleanup hitter in the box or the ace on the mound. God calls it as it really is. And that's actually really comforting when we think about it. Because it means that no one is getting away with anything. It doesn't matter who you are. This truth gives hope to the servant, even as I think it gives a warning to the master. You might feel taken advantage of, but if you are, God knows about that. You might think something is unfair, but if it is, God sees it. No one is getting away with anything. All that is wrong will come to light and be made right in the end because God's eye is perfect and because God is a just God. From heaven's perspective, earthly slave and master are all in the same boat under God. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, we come to a verse that's clearly written to masters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now notice how, how Paul connects the logic of who God is to who masters ought to be. God is a master, and he's a certain kind of master. He goes about his business justly and fairly, and he expects his undermasters to do the same. Masters may be masters, but they have a master too. As masters expect their workers to obey, Jesus expects his masters to obey. This means they can't be harsh with their servants. Bosses can't be harsh with their employees. There are no biblical grounds for harshness. They are to be fair and just. Now, this sounds easier than I think it really is. When someone works for us, I mean, it's, it's far too easy to think too lowly of them, to assume the worst rather than the best, to pass the work you're supposed to do down to those who have other, what you've already determined are more important tasks for them to do, to overburden, to under-resource, to discourage the worker. The boss has a lot of responsibility, but no responsibility is greater than treating those under him or her well. Jesus is watching how we treat each other. He cares. And of course, Jesus is our model here. Just as he is the power to live it out, Jesus is our Lord. What kind of master is he? If you supervise others, how do you need to change in light of who Jesus is to you? He'll forgive us of all our failures. We know that. And he will also empower us to do things his way. We will all one day fall under the judgment of God for how we lived our lives. Now, if we are in Christ... Even our greatest and most damning sins will be wholly forgiven. 
We know that's true. And if you are not in Christ, even your greatest deeds will be condemned. Our only hope is to find ourselves hidden in Christ. And when we are, as the author of Hebrews says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. On that great and final day, we want to hear that we did well with what he had given us, don't we? There is a gospel motivation for this. Jesus is telling us our lives matter. Every bit of them. And alongside just the the, the meaning that we can draw kind of individually from our work because of this, our work also serves to put on display the glory of Jesus in this world. When we go about our work the Jesus way, it is different by nature than the world's way. It says something about the master that we serve. I mean, think of what the Roman world would have seen in the master-slave relationship inside the church. If they were to come in and see, what? You're talking to them? Like they matter? I mean, how different was that from the world's way? How honoring to Jesus was that? Their work was now bound up in the Savior's work. The world was seeing a different way to live inside that church. It was the Jesus way. The gospel way. And Jesus is calling all of us into that now. That's the honor that we have, the privilege that we have to work for him. Jesus is saying to us today that the motivation for our good, hard work is not to be noticed by him, but comes from already being noticed by him. We are under his kind watch, and he's not only infusing our work with his grace to honor and glorify him and provide goods and services that help others flourish, but he is also receiving all our work unto himself as service to him. I don't know how many times I've said that, but I want you to know it. He receives our work as unto him. No task is meaningless. It can't be because Jesus is in it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, is there an area of life that the gospel does not change? There isn't. That's the point. Even slaves have meaning now. Even tasks no one else notices are now suddenly holy moments of service to the king of the universe. He sees it. He honors it. He rewards it. So, let's go and do it. And as we do it, let's just look to Jesus and let's just trust him moment by moment in all of it. That'll change your week this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that our work matters to you.
You know, Lord, I think even of the very beginning, when you put Adam and Eve in the garden, you gave them work to do. Work is not a curse of the fall. You gave it to us as a good gift. And Lord, we, we complain about it a lot. We slack off more than we should. We think wrongly about it. We try to get things you don't mean for us to get from work, but rather from you. Father, forgive us. Give us this, this higher, Christ-centered vision of work. And be with us, Lord, as we know you always are. And change us from one degree of glory to another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.